Hey, you're listening to the Viable Markets Podcast. I'm your host, Chris White. Welcome to Masters of Market Structure. Welcome to Masters of Market Structure. Um, It's my pleasure to have uh, Reggie Brown with us, one of the leading minds in uh, financial markets. Uh, Most people know Mr. Brown from the title that he was given uh, by a Forbes magazine article calling him the godfather of ETFs. Um, I know Reggie is one of the uh, more generous people in the business in terms of his time um, and his energy around uh, helping people in the space, uh, whether it's learn about ETFs or just learn about the, the greater aspects of, of how to build a career like his. So um, this is one of the many favors he's done for me, which is coming here now, taking time out and, and sitting down doing a podcast with us. Uh, so welcome, Reggie, and, and thank you for coming. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Well, before we get into everything about what you're doing now, I think one of the most interesting things, um, just in terms of getting to know you, is your origin story for how you even thought about getting into financial markets. And I think it starts with a magazine, but I don't want to front run your story. But as as a kid, you kind of knew you wanted to be in this space. Well, Chris, uh, thanks. Look, everyone has a narrative in life and everyone has aspirations and dreams and how they got started in various tracks they did. And um, my story, I was telling a group of 14-year-olds um, last week at, at New York that every dream starts with an idea. And mine uh, was um, indoctrinated by my family who believed in saving money and investing. And I was exposed to that at a young age. So uh, you just never know where things go and the impressions you make on young people. And I'm a testament to that. And uh, had a long career after you know, being a member of this, um, this ecosystem of capital markets. So w- when, you're, when you're talking about career development in capital markets, um, you know, being on the front foot of what's happening next seems to be where most people make uh, make a difference or, or differentiate themselves and say from others. So when did you start to see that passive investing or, or indexing was uh, not only something that was uh, interesting, but something where you would start to build your career around it? I mean, what, what was sort of the inflection point? Because there's always a beginning to when um, indexing starting. Like when, what was the beginning of S&P 500? Well, you know, I wish I had a crystal ball saying I was right and I was a guru. Um, time and place um, is everything. And like most people who are successful on Wall Street, uh, recognizing opportunity and latching on and monetizing that is what makes people successful. Um, so you look at the launch of ETFs in the United States in 1993. I came along, I did tail in 95 and early 96 making markets on the SP500 SPY ETF, the largest ETF in the world, essentially. Um, uh, on the Amex, uh, it looked like something cool to do. It was no one there, uh, didn't really trade as much. Um, I think uh, it was like maybe 400 million of assets in the, uh, in the ETF when- um, Relative to today, like what does it look like today? I don't know the number, I don't really keep track of spiders, but you know, several billion dollars. Okay. So. I got to look at my Bloomberg and give you an answer. <laughs> I just don't know. Sorry. No, when you, when you say 400, when you say 400 million, people are like, that yeah, sounds like a lot to me. But, no, but the industry is now, what, 4 trillion? Yeah. And it's growing at a 23% uh, compounded growth rate, you know. So 
um, you know, I came along at a fairly um, you know unique time when no one was paying attention. Uh, the instrument was you know was, was starting to lag from its initial launch a year and a half before I got there, and I joined a crowd of uh, of the specialists. You know, there's a guy named Gary Eisenreich knocking on doors and pounding the pavement, talking the benefits of SPY in lieu of trading futures. And it was a replacement for futures at the time. So what was the pitch in terms of the differences? Uh, deep liquidity, uh, no counterparty risk, uh, trade like a stock, sell short. Um, you know, and the initial buyers of that were um, hedge funds mm -hmm. who were taking advantage of index arbitrage between the S&P 500 and individual baskets. There's a lot of spread there back then. It was hard to arbitrage 500 stocks at one time or 504 stocks at one time. Um, matter of fact, the Russell 2000 basket really didn't become tradable until an ETF came out on it, the Russell 2000. So if you look at um, indexing and passive indexing, um, it has brought more participants in the marketplace. It has brought more efficiency and it has lowered the price of exposure through competition of other types of vehicles. So other types of vehicles are futures, swaps, um, SMAs for long-only managers who use them, and ETFs uh, appeal to mom-and-pop retail. So I want to back you up for a second because I think that like, when I think about especially equity market ETFs today, I think the ARB is gone. But you're saying in the early days, like, that was the business. People basically traded the underlying versus the ETF. Yep. So you're a market maker making markets in the ETF. Like, What were you looking at? Because I'm assuming that you're trying to protect yourself from mispricing in the ETF. So you had to have your eyes on all 500 stocks? Like, How did you do it? No. Well, look, Chris, I came into this market in 1984. So I was just a kid coming into the marketplace where folks were still worried about playing football and and uh, having fun in life, I wanted to work. Um, out of desire to being part of the stock market and all that it brings to you. So when I started, um, I was there for the crash of 87, October 1987. Where were you for the crash of 87? Um, I was at the Philadelphia Stock Exchange working for the Philex, the exchange itself, um, as a kid getting exposure to the business. Um, and so if you look at um, the various inflection points of my career, we have, Coming in as a, as a kid, I was 15, working at the floor of the, of the, of the Philadelphia Stock Exchange. Um, you know, market structure was very different, you know, trading in eights and quarters increments. And then when I rolled around to start trading Spider, we were trading in 64. So you had a minimum spread in the marketplace that allowed for professional market makers to bring liquidity to the marketplace, make a return on capital, and do the arbitrage of the of an instrument versus a long basket. And as I said before, he had efficiency issues where it really wasn't able to do that because computerized trading basically came into the marketplace in 85, 86, and the crash 87 was response to uh, the inability to clear demand on the sell side in this case. Mm -hmm and an inability to do proper arbitrage. Well, I want to I ask you actually about the crash of 87 because like the standing theory, like when I look at equity market structure, is that the actual turning off of electronic trading systems during that crash, and I don't know, did that happen? You know, they turned off the SuperDot system mm -hmm. at NYSE, all the NASDAQ market makers turned off their systems. 
What, did the Philadelphia turn off their system as well? Were market makers doing that? I don't recall that. Um, remember at that time, and I haven't done the empirical look back to see what actually happened, other than there was a, a, a convergence of sell orders. You had the uptick rule, and the marketplace couldn't clear, couldn't find equilibrium in the marketplace, and that's why the stock market crashed 25%. We look at the following days, up 10, up 6%, it just said the marketplace was inefficient, yeah. and um, there wasn't a mechanism to allow for transfer risk efficiently. Well, the rule that came out of 87 was basically you cannot turn off your the electronic trading system. So, like, you're going through that at an impressionable time of your career. What, what, what were 88, 89, and 90 like? Like, was it now, could you see that this market from a market structure standpoint was going to rely a lot more on machines because of that mandate? Or well, was it just not that obvious? Well, hold on. It's funny you say that rule. What happened in the flash crash? What happened? You know, of, of the two biggest market events in recent past where, um, you know, there's so many inefficiencies and people just walked away. Right? Well, you're, well you're, you're now talking about the unintended consequences of assuming that everything E is safe, which is basically what, where I think like we, we've kind of come full circle on it. Where it's like, hey, if we had the electronic systems turned on in 87, the market could have cleared, which I'm assuming is the theory behind the rule to keep the electronic trading systems on. And now here we are looking at flash crashes occurring in highly electronic markets. And we're right. saying, wait a second, um, we're also seeing a clearing issue as well. But, you know, I, I'm just I'm interested from your perspective. You're a younger guy in the market. Yep. Were, were you fighting against the innovation of electronic trading at that point in time? Or were you like, this is the way I'm going to build my career. Like, I, I actually want to be savvy here. Well, so um, in fairness, so when I left working, when I went to school and, you know, my next professional job was trading options at O'Connor Associates, um, trading index options or being the assistant there. And then I got trained through O'Connor. And then from there, I went to Susquehanna. So I've had some tremendous um, work experience mm -hmm. by some of the best um, trading shops known um, in industry. And O'Connor is uh, Wall Street lore. Um, so is Susquehanna. I mean, their, their training program for traders is Yeah, is poker, legendary. game theory. Yeah. You know, and so um, most people have a root in game theory and optionality and statistics and forecasting and probability. So you look at just, um, you know, today's marketplace, right? Um, it's event-driven, it's computer-driven, um, it's automated, and this is what the regulators wanted. Regulators wanted an automated system that removed the human being from decision-making and allowed for uh, cheap uh, market access by retail clients. So look at today, right? So at $4.95, or in some cases, totally free, market, ass, market access for mom and pop retail is the cheapest it's ever been in, in life. And the cost of exposure, midpoint pricing for US equities, nice and cheap. So if you contrast um, my entry in the marketplace in 84 as a child, um, 87 stock market crash, options, looking at foreign currency options, trading in on a Philex, I was part of that too. Um, you have different market structures and, and different um, different perspectives how the market's thinking at the current time. And so there was a lot of opportunity um, to provide risk capital and get a return. And so the marketplace uh, thrived on some of the inefficiencies from there. 
And so you think about the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, I mean, those are some incredible time periods. As you look at um, particularly the bull market during the Clinton era, right, mm -hmm. and what happened with technology expansion and, and that, that era and all of the opportunity that's created, that brought in new thinking about how to best apply efficient tools in the marketplace and to help clients transfer risks efficiently and still um, be rewarded for some of the intellectual capital being deployed. And um, the 80s, I think you can categorize as somewhat of a slumber fest, right? Everyone's going, God, God, life is great, and not really thinking hard about the future. And that's when the ball really started, you know, and seeing just go gaze of the 80s and how people were just celebrating how great life is and not really recognizing changes coming around. Okay, so you're you're great at at, at um, uh, you know kind of categorizing the different decades. So wh where are we in right now? Like what's going on right now? From uh, just how would you categorize the past ten years of market structure, uh, the market structure environment when it comes to you know trading and market making? Yeah, I think look, I think we're coming out of a period of overregulation um, and a period of trying to understand how best to apply empirical data on events that, um, that just passed and how I think about future regulation. So um, I think that the current commission is looking hard um, at it. And I think in the previous 10 years that we've, we came out of was a direct result of excesses in the marketplace and the world collapsed around the financial system. And that taught us a lot of things, and there's a lot of fear there, right? So out of that fear and out of the direct result, you got a period of overregulation to prevent what just happened. And so the pendulum is now changing, um, and even looking at the stance of central banks and their need to, to uh, infuse capital in the system in order to get their societies uh, moving in. Look at Japan, for example, what's happening there uh, under Prime Minister Abe. They had a day where no Japanese government bonds traded. Yes. Because they're all being held by the central bank. But uh, actually, you know, you, you've been very much involved. You've, you've committed your time to helping with regulations. I know you were part of the SEC's Equity Market Structure Committee. Like, could you, uh, they just started a committee around fixed income. So what I'd first love to hear is like, what's the purpose of that committee from the SEC's perspective? They're creating committees to do what? Well, so they created, um, FISAC, you know, Fixed Income Market Structure Committee. They had MSEC, Equity Market Structure Advisory Committee. Look, I thought that bringing in unique views from different perspectives was a welcome uh, opportunity from many corners of the industry. And anytime, you know, well, in my experience, the commission has an open door. If you want to come talk to them, they'll be received because they're looking for your views on how to approach things. So I think it's an open door. And so there is a squadron of market participants who just fear talking to regulators. I think that's the wrong answer, in my opinion. Um, and so from FINRA, who regulates human beings, to SEC, who regulates institutions, um, I think that IMSAC was beneficial. One, uh, the commission taught the industry how it's thinking and its approach to problem solving. Mm -hmm. And IMSAC- and what, what, Well, I want to hear about that. What is their thinking? Because I think that, that because that's that's been difficult to decipher from afar. I mean, my, my my personal observation is that a lot of regulation comes from 
the amount of political capital that you have. Like sure. you talk about the overregulation sure. that, that, that that's happened. That's obviously coming out of the crash of, of 2008. And so mm -hmm. now you have the political capital. And so I feel like regulators are sort of waiting for, when am I going to have political capital again to make big changes? But what, what, like what perspective did you get while you were working in the committee? Like what, what, how are they thinking about it? Well, I think, look, I think broadly, I think they're looking for big themes that, uh, that will po have a positive outcome to mom and pop retail. Right? So I think their first approach is household wealth and household creation and make sure mom and pop are protected from um, unique uh, risk in the marketplace from either systemic risk, resiliency, or transparency issues, and they're looking for those issues. So do you home. think that those issues are prevalent in the equity markets today? Because like, we started off this conversation by you saying it's cheaper than ever before to trade as a mom and pop. Yeah, that's true, right? But look at my industry, right? You know, I'm in the exchange-traded fund industry, um, launching exchange-traded portfolios of all different types. And just because it's a 40-act mutual fund, it trades like a mutual fund, or it trades, trades like a stock, but it's a mutual fund, uh, what's inside that wrapper is what needs to governance and regulation. And, you know, I am on record by saying cryptocurrency ETFs uh, weren't ready five years ago. They're not ready yet and they're not ready tomorrow because of the market structure around crypto is just, there's <clears throat> not enough transparency in the marketplace for it to have currently. Right? So what's a, you know, market structure around crypto is something that we've been following pretty closely. Yep. Like what, what is your, what's your understanding of the market structure around crypto right now? Like what, what does it look like to you as someone who's seen many different markets grow up? Like where are they from a developmental standpoint? I, I think, uh, I think, uh, the micro market structure around crypto. I love saying that, by the way. <laughs> it sounds a lot smarter than it is. It really does, actually. Um, I think the market structure around crypto hasn't solved for efficient, efficient price dissemination or a composite price for, um, for the various cryptocurrencies. Number one, and then you, the crypto market hasn't really responded how to clear um, excess demand or find equilibrium efficiently um, in that marketplace. And then until you have that, you can't throw a 40-act mutual fund on top of that or even a 33 commodity wrapper around it trying to solve for those issues. Now look, if you go fixed income, you're a fixed income guy, right? I think ETFs have brought greater efficiency to the fixed income marketplace and has, um, has the ability to transfer risks at a cheaper price than trading online corporate bonds. But I want before we get into that, I want to stay on this crypto thing for a bit because I'm just I'm just contrasting no, it to I understand. But I think what's most interesting about crypto is that the entire trading environment on crypto has been built around a fully electronic order book. Yep. So there's been no resistance to electronic trading in crypto. And so to hear you say that it's a transparency and it's a, you know, basically it's an integrity issue. Yep. It's just, it's very interesting because I think a lot of the, the original uh, forefathers of electronic trading believed that it would bring forth greater market integrity if you just put everything onto an electronic order book. And we're seeing that not happening. The other thing that we're seeing in terms of clearing risk, and you know, I'm not, I'm not anti-electronic order book, but I do think it's important that we know where the electronic order book comes from. It doesn't come from a place where institutions are able to clear massive amounts of order flow. 
It comes from a place where retail individuals can clear order flow at the best possible price in the market. Right. So if everything is an order book in crypto world, like what we're seeing right now, I think, in terms of these order books moving around, is institutional supply and demand hitting these order books and what actually happens when you don't have any market makers or market making, um, you know, um, lots of standards. It's very or, thin. Or, yeah, so, so that's, that's the way, you know, yes, I'm a fixed income guy, but just on a more a broad market perspective, it's really interesting to me because fixed income's running towards, hey, we should have an electronic order book and everything will be okay. And we're actually seeing a market that has no voice and there are clearly some issues around the integrity of that market um, and just being purely focused around electronic order book. Um, I, I just, do you see the electronic order book as, as, as needing some adjustment in order to clear the outsized supply and demand that's, that's in cryptos now? And, and if so, how, how should they do it? Like what's a protocol that they should use? Yeah, I'm not there yet personally, you know, how to capture that. All I know that if you look at other countries, essentially like a club, central limit order book hasn't solved all of the issues around finding equilibrium and clearing price particularly uh, clearing a price for um, institutional use, right? It's solved it for retail, but you know, if an institution wants to move 5% of, of a holding, um, the club is not the answer. And I can point to Canada um, as a primary example of equity market structure you don't want to emulate in the United States or any place else around the world. However, if you look at- um, That's interesting because the electronic order book comes from Canada. 1977. So, what has it turned into now that you don't want to emulate it? High fees. I say high fees. It's all about the fees. It's all about market access, um, and it's all about the ability for institutions to clear. So this whole, not to go deep on market structure, but this whole debate around this is called masters of market structure. Well, I, I junior I, varsity. No, I understand <laughs> that. But if you look at maker taker debate, right? Yep. Maker taker. You look at the access fee pilot. You look at you know who's paying and follow the money, and people are saying there's a lot of conflicts of interest in the marketplace. This is really a story about retail versus institutions, mom and pop retail versus big bad institutions who can't seem to wrap their hands around conflicts of interest or perceptions of that of liquidity dividers and the 30 mil re rebate. Okay, but, but Reggie, on this point, this is where I'm perplexed. Sure. Because on, a, on an aggregate basis, don't the institutions represent the broader retail market when we're talking about funds, when we're talking about index products? Like these are the things that, you know, my grandparents aren't trading individual stocks. They, you know, people have their money in these these structured products, so to speak, that are these funds and obviously passive, you know, both active and passive funds, those are the institutions. So, you know, shouldn't we be creating a market structure that serves the, the institutions first? It's been 50 years since the equity market was really run by retail order flow. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, do you, what do you feel about that statement? Is that an accurate statement in terms of the way to look at it, or am I missing something? I'd rather solve for market structure for mom and pop retail to draw them in and to get full household deployment in the U.S. equity market. If, once we achieve that, institutions are filled with people who are really smart and clever people, and they can get around um, certain inefficiencies they may find just, you know, they're sad about. So um, it comes down to how to simplify 
how to bring more transparency and how to create um, resiliency in the marketplace so that the least informed investor does not get hurt and run over. Because you know what? I've seen periods over the decades where mom pop retail, hey, the game is rigged, I'm out. Mm-hmm. You have certain uh, U.S. stock U.S. Uh, stock exchange operators who feed on the fear that the game is rigged. Where I look at them, you're part of the system. You know, you know. So we know who those operators are. Whatever. <laughs> right. I didn't say I didn't say name. So the bottom line is this: um, when you go into the nuanced conversation, now mind you, market micro market structure and market structure conversation only came around in 2005. And, and came fully invented in the marketplace in 2000. Prior to that, what did you guys call it? Called the U.S. stock market. Bring it on. <laughs> Called the New York Stock Exchange. They own 80% of, of the outstanding float, uh, outstanding trading. And so the complexity that we've created over Reg NMS, fully deployed in 2010, has brought huge amounts of complexity that has allowed this podcast to come to fruition and a whole host of conferences over the last. Uh, many years and so it comes down to how do we simplify the marketplace while incentivizing uh, risk capital to come to the marketplace to keep it in equilibrium and soundness so that we don't have events like 1987 we don't have events like 2015 where there's a confluent uh, worldwide systemic risk coming to the US market and the US market is not prepared to take it on all right we need resiliency and so the conversation should come to boil down, what's the most resilient system that we can devise that brings the most amount of capital in the marketplace with true incentives? And so you get the best ideas in a free market society just inventing and coming in and out and saying, this is great. I personally think the next disruption that we're going to be faced, particularly in the investment management industry, is going to be blockchain. I think blockchain is going to revolutionize how um, U.S. investors are going to transfer their portfolios in a way that's going to be a worldwide, globalized system that's going to just change um, our industry in many different ways. So that change is going to be the order flow never gets to the intermediary type of change? Hope not. I'm one of those intermediaries. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're talking about uh, some things that are, you know, on, on on the cusp of being controversial, I would say. Nothing too hotbed. But... You know, you and I have talked a few times about, you know, fixed income markets and ETFs in the fixed income markets, because I think that's where, you know, from just our respective backgrounds, um, it, it can be, become a pretty interesting conversation. Um, now, <clears throat> there's, there's a huge indictment on, or at least publicly there seems to be some fear and indictment around the safety of fixed income ETFs. I'm having a tough time understanding the argument around the danger could you articulate at least what people think is the problem? And then we can you know, talk about structurally whether or not this is, or at least whether or not this argument is sound. So when, when I hear Carl Icahn say weapons of mass destruction or corporate bond ETFs, like why is he saying that? And why do some people nod their head in agreement? Well, let's see, the corporate bond market is $8 trillion, right? Or something? Nine. Nine, okay, nine who's, trillion. Who's Eight, nine trillion dollars, right? <laughs> yeah. All right, and how many how many issues are there? 35, 40,000? About 40,000. Okay, so it's grown to the last check. All right, I missed a trillion, and I missed 5,000 different corporate bond issues. Well, CVS came out. That's about that, that's where the extra trillion comes from. Okay. Massive issue. Yeah, okay, well, I didn't pay attention to that. 
Actually, I did. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, no, it's very <laughs> incredible. It got it at a really incredible price, actually. Yes. It picked the market off. Um, I'm a trader. I can talk like that. Yes, yes. So, is this being taped? So, I think the bottom line is this. Um, if you look at the corporate bond market um, and you look at regulations of investment banks you know, over the last 15 years, um, particularly how banks are regulated using their balance sheets, um, it's been difficult to hold inventory in 35 or 40,000 different corporate bond in uh, instruments. That's number one. Number two, um, the way that bonds are held, generally they're held to maturity and you get a coupon and you, know, you buy them once you tuck them in portfolio and call it a day. So you don't have the frequency of turnover as you have in corporate equities perspective. No, I, I get all that. Hold on, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm getting to a point. Yeah. And so if you look at, um, there are some who say that bonds should be uh, bought and held and not transferred like equities. And there is a concern that the um, that given the central bank policy and the skew um, into um, into rates, um, everyone's looking for a return. That the marketplace is overbought, and when it's time to find a new price level, there isn't enough participants in the marketplace, nor there is enough liquidity to find an efficient equilibrium safely. And so you look. Folks may be looking at ETFs as an instrument by saying they're going to use the ETF as an instrument to transfer risk where there won't be enough capacity in the marketplace to fund equilibrium efficiently. And I argue ETFs are not here to prevent principal loss or principal gain. It's a tool. And the marketplace will find equilibrium pretty efficiently at a quick price. So we, we actually we, we did this out of sequence because one of the things I wanted to ask you before we got into this discussion is what role the the AP plays, the authorized participant in the entire in the ETF ecosystem. So you've got the ETF issuer yep. that's trying to gather as many assets as possible and then turn them into index shares. You've got the end buyer. Where does the AP sit in this in this equation? So the AP is the uh, primary issuer at the primary level at NAV between the street and the ETF fund itself. So the AP is the official authorized participant, is the official creator of new shares. So ETFs like mutual funds, it's a 40th mutual fund. You create new shares, you redeem shares, and you create outstanding float, and you redeem outstanding float. So, you're, so APs are the only entities in the marketplace that can actually take a basket of whatever the underlying constituents are, take a basket, and turn them into shares. Transfer over to an ETF, ETF will offer, a, offer new shares out of that fund. Right. Right. So ETFs are nothing more than a fractional ownership was ever in a fund and it's 100% collateralized and all the outstanding float, all the outstanding securities are inside that trust. And I think that that's a big thing that I don't know is really understood. I'm sure it's understood by now. Well, no. Anyone listening to this podcast will get <laughs> no, it. No, no, no. If they can't understand that no. role, no, 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 it's, they it's, should turn it off. No, it's, it's, under, it's understanding that it's, there's no way, from what you're describing, it is not possible for there to be more outstanding shares of an ETF than what is represented or held notionally by the ETF provider, correct? Yeah. Because the authorized participant is keeping equilibrium between 
the outstanding shares and the actual and, know, and, assets held under management. And if there's um, an issue around a imbalance between outstanding shares, particularly on the short side, versus the outstanding float, it's just a two-day uh, demand issue because those shares haven't been created yet, right? So it's hyperthenication. It's second lending issues where there's an optic that there's more shares outstanding typically on, this, on the short side than inside the trust because when I came to market, it was T plus five. Then it came T plus three. Now it's T plus two, right? And so there is a, uh, there is a day problem, right? It takes a couple of days to recognize that marketplace is out of balance. Marketplace will create new shares, redeem shares. And then at some point, it will come to be a true basket. But look. Um, so is that where the is that what the the weapon of mass destruction accusation comes from? No, or is it something else? I just think it's more of a market access issue where the five percent is that's indexed into corporate bonds ETF format. So just out of the entire corporate bond market, only five percent of the outstanding notional is in a, in the ETF that's destruction. Correct. Yeah, five okay. percent of the eight trillion you just told me that was outstanding. Nine. Nine trillion. Just count. All right, CVS. Is, well, is CVS part of an ETF yet? I'm sure it is. Well, it actually moved into it. It, it moved into LQD. So you're uh, smart. So yeah, no, we, we just look at this stuff and and so I don't. It's in, it's in one ear and out the other. But okay, so the, the other the other thing that I think where people maybe feel that uh, corporate bond ETFs are dangerous is I think it has to do. You keep on mentioning transparency. Well, here you have a situation that's quite unique where the transparency around the actual trading of the ETF that represents a bunch of corporate bonds is much, much better than the underlying transparency of the constituents that that index represents. Right. So, you know, the ARB, the ARB activity that you were talking about um, in the early days of the equity market, or the early days of spiders, that's going on in corporate bond ETFs. However, it's a lot dodgier because you don't have streaming prices uh, you know in abundance for size you don't have centralized pricing and therefore like understanding the true nav of the etf as composed by the pricing of the underlying constituents is not possible and i think that that just gives people you know a, a foreboding feeling because it's just it's ambiguous like does this is this high yield ETF actually represent the underlying bonds that are in this that, that are in it? I, I'm not really sure because I don't really see pricing information from the underlying bonds. Do you hear that as an argument when you're talking to people around you know, their their hesitancy around using corporate bond ETFs? They feel there is a decoupling from the underlying security itself. I think it's more of uh, NAV construction of the ETF or mutual fund, how NAV is constructed. I think there's not a lot of understanding how a bond ETF or the investment grade or high yield um, is calculated its true nav. And if you well, have true nav is different from what you can what you can absolutely what, from what the market's saying it is, right? right. So now you're talking about um, the fixed income market structure, how um, bonds are, are priced and and the pricing between the ETF trust versus underlying um, uh, corporate bonds in particular. So look, an ETF typically is priced at the midpoint, uh, and some ETFs for uh, fixed incomes are priced on the bid, but very few are priced on the offer. So you're just looking at, uh, individual corporate bonds could be as wide as what, 1%, 75 basis points, and you're taking a midpoint pricing and bonds are trading on the bid, 
then you would think that the ETF is trading at a discount where ETF is actually telling you how the bond world is being priced real time versus a static benchmark. So premium discounts you know, is a window into the current price of how the bond market is thinking versus a static NAV per se. And so if you look at some of the detractors of, of fixed income, they're saying they're really making an issue around fixed income market structure and an ability to clear or find equilibrium around uh, an imbalance, buy or sell. And they're saying ETFs could be a catalyst because more people will rush to an ETF to offset their risk or exposure on either side, buy or sell. And the ETF uh, community doesn't have capacity because the way that fixed income market structure is currently set up. So if there's an issue around fixed income ETFs, they're really making a pot shot at the current market structure, how corporate bonds are traded, and there's not a lot of transparency of its true last sell or where best to move inventory, because you're still operating on a OWIC and BWIC system calling around market makers. And, and Reggie, then how is this any different than active funds that hold many, I mean, multiple or exponentially more corporate bonds than passive? Active funds have the same issue around. It's called NAV, it's called NAV determination, right? And so my argument to you, Chris, if you want to move a billion dollars into uh, one of the uh, high yield ETFs, you know you can get done for twenty five or thirty basis points of impact, and they will put a billion dollars into a mutualized pool called a mutual fund. Don't really understand what the impact is. All you see is a mutualized. NAV day to day, and then you see tracking error and performance issues over a long period of time. So you guys have actually done that trade before. You've you you've yeah. transferred. Um, was it? I, I don't know if I remember it properly, but we do it all the time. So so you, so so what's the typical trade when you're talking about notional sizes? You know, 750 million. And so what is somebody looking for? An institution comes to you and they say, "I want exposure. What's my price?" And I'm walking to them or my traders who trade fixing up for me are looking at the path of execution and thinking about what's the least uh, passive resistance, whether it's doing a, correct, uh, a direct uh, create or whether it's buy the bonds and then aggregate over a period of time and do a best uh, price average and to give the bonds over to trust. There's many different paths of execution. But when they're asking for exposure, they're asking for exposure to the ETF or they're asking for exposure to the underlying bonds or well, vice versa? It, it could be both. Okay. Right. So, you know, uh, there's a squadron of, of smart uh, fixed income managers that are now using ETFs to remove excess inventory that remains on their pad at the end of the day and saying, let me give my unexecuted bonds to an ETF manager and turn and get back an ETF. And I turn and I sell the ETF in the marketplace, VWAP, like an equity strategy. Mm -hmm. I give them over bonds at, um, at a price that I can readily calculate and discern I got a fair price and turn around and sell the ETF in the marketplace. And so ETFs are revolutionizing how, how participants are thinking about removing risk out of the marketplace and not using traditional OBIC system by calling several market makers. And, and that's just not happening on the buy side. I think that the, the, the more advanced sell-side dealers are getting this joke as well. We're, we're definitely seeing um, ETF-focused desks coming up onto the fixed income floors and working in conjunction with the traditional market-making desk. Um, I think in some instances it's working very well. I think in other instances there are some growing pains. 
but there clearly there clearly is recognized a, a value to being able to convert converting from the actual ETF into the bonds and the bonds into the ETF and I think it's actually something that in the long run will add uh, will, will make a, a healthier ecosystem around trading yep I agree with that um, so <clears throat> Before I, I want to ask you some more questions, but but before before we we get into you know um, sort of how I want to close, I wanted to get your thoughts on sort of what's next for the market. You've already poo pooed, um, you know, cryptocurrency uh, cryptocurrency ETFs, and then you said blockchain is going to change the way you know the investment management community works. Like what you've you've been on the forefront, you've seen you know decades of change now, so. When you when you look at the tea leaves, like what's coming next? What's something that people should be focusing on? What's the well, the fifteen year old version of you right now, like who's listening to this podcast? Yep. What advice should you give them about what to look for in the market to to build a successful career? Yeah, I think the blockchain ledger is a game changer, and I think that's going to revolutionize many parts of our business. Okay. All right. Um, so blockchain is different than crypto. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Well, you know more about this than me. I know the crypto. No, but blockchain. Not, not, not really. My, my question on blockchain is what can't blockchain do? No, no. I'm just a kid from Philly, man. Just <laughs> come work like, every day. You know, like every time I go to a conference, it's like blockchain can do this, blockchain can do that. And so I've just accepted it. All right. Blockchain can can solve, you know, world great world peace and solve world hunger. Yeah. Blockchain is used for nefarious activities, you know, to transfer illegal gotten gains around the world, right? So that's how I look at it. And um, the biggest users of, of crypto um, are folks in, in non-free societies that are trying to circumvent uh, stiff penalties and rules by their government. And so for them, it works. It works for them. It's good for them. It's paying extreme price to circumvent their regulations. Right? But doesn't also crypto end up circumventing central bank control of the money flow? Absolutely, right? So in order to have a... Um, you know, a well-respected currency, you need an army and a navy, right? And so without an army and navy protecting your currency, crypto, for example, um, won't survive because the governments, the central banks, will devise their own um, ledger um, and then, um, you know, crush what's going on currently. So that's why I think all this stuff is a short, because eventually central banks will come out standardized looking at some format, whether it's Ripple or some other type of, of a platform and rally behind it and, and go for it. So I think, look, I think if you want to be successful in this business and looking at the next 25 years, um, it's going to be around the, the, uh, the blockchain ledger. And two, I think it's going to be harmonizing various world markets um, to markets that are successful. So capital will go into areas that are inefficient um, and then it'll close up those inefficiencies um, and I think world central banks are coming more commercial to those ideas of bringing foreigners um, into their markets to revolutionize how household thinks. So you look at certain Asian countries, a lot of them are very conservative, households don't invest their money. Some of the Asian countries are gamblers by nature, like playing stock market, like playing the daily number. But lo and behold, a lot of their, their wealth is in hard assets like real estate or under the mattress. So how do you get those economies, particularly like Japan, functioning to bring more capital to the marketplace to allow companies to go public and expand their economies and reduce the reliance of, um, of government? And so that's the role that uniquely that I play, you play, and our own 
various things. I'm going to a conference uh, next week in Japan to talk about liquidity and how to bring more liquidity to local investors to reduce their costs and how to use global instruments in order to do it. And so that's breaking down home country bias, breaking down regulation and barriers, and teaching um, the regulators how to be more commercial. We did this uh, in the late 90s. We're down to Chile and Peru to, to talk to their pension plans. And we actually brought competition to the marketplace. How to reduce costs to the pension plans who invariably invest money for every local household to get better performance. I put a flag in there and say, I did that. And so um, there are places around the world that doesn't have commercial success like, like here in America. And we do some really damn good things here in the United States. And we need to export the best talent possible to bring a return because we're bringing some smarts uh, and let people who actually achieve something great for other people, let them win, right? This is about winning. There's no need to uh, forecast um, from some to say Adam Smith is wrong, right? Uh, money goes to where it's most efficient and we should promote that and say that's what makes America's great. So young version of you today focused on digital currency and, and looking for opportunities globally in terms of in, improving just the overall participation of people in the, the trading and investing process. I tell my kids, my, I have two 18-year-olds, I tell my kids don't be a dumb American, learn three languages and go, go find a pot of gold. And that's exactly what they're going to do. I say don't be a dumb American, learn three languages, goodbye. <laughs> All right, so before we close out, one of, one of the things that I think is um, really important, something that, that, I, that you've stressed, I know is really important for you, is um, the arts and, and really networking and being, and being helpful to people. So first thing I want to talk to you about is um, you know, your role in the arts. I know that you've invested in plays, you've invested in, in, buying, pieces of, in buying works of art, you've invested in artists. So why, why do you do that? Like why, why is that a part of you know, you outside of, uh, of the world of finance? Like, why have you made that a priority in your life? Well, there aren't a lot of people who know this. <laughs> they so, do now. <laughs> they do now. Uh, it's just not Wall Street, and it's not corporate thinking, and it's a way uh, particularly to capture um, current history um, and promote that to be um, safeguarded for the future. So, yeah, I sit on a museum board, a, a couple university boards, and I'm a big believer in young people. I'm also a big believer of being a historian. And if you don't have diverse um, views and diverse uh, people thinking about how to capture the narrative, then um, today's narrative won't be captured accurately. Um, so it's a fun thing I do, and it's divergent away from being a corporate guy and traveling the earth and talking about corporate things, looking for profits. Um, it's just a way to um, bring my other skill set in on the, from the business side and apply that into the arts. So yeah, I have uh, a robust collection of visual art that I like. I sit on a theater board that brings uh, producing plays um, to the marketplace. And it's a way, it's a venue for people who have something to say to say it. And so if you look at how art has changed societies, I point nothing else than how a cartoon caused havoc in France, uh, you know, and has brought, uh, you know, social change um, into various countries that didn't allow for change to occur. And that art happened on Instagram and Facebook. 
You know, so whatever you want to think about um, social media today, it is an artistic platform and it's a narrative and you need people to uh, express their views. You need funders in order for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And then um, networking, and this is something that like, I think there's just a broad brush like networking and, and I think a lot of uh, older people in the business preach to young people about how important networking is, but I don't think that it's really quite understood. Like, what is your philosophy on networking in business? And I, and I ask you this because um, a lot of times when I, when I go to see people or, yeah. or I'm in meetings um, and anything touching the ETF space, if the person happens to be there, they know you. Yep. And uh, maybe because we, 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 we do have the same frame and skin tone, they always yeah. speak positively of you. Oh, really? But, um, you know, the, what have you found in your career and what are your sort of guidelines around not only um, uh, being mentored, but being a mentor to someone? Like, what, what, how, what, how do you approach it? Well, look, I think, uh, number one, I don't view what I do as a career. I view it as part of my life, right? So the enthusiasm I bring, um, and I'm at uh, an age now I'm thinking about the rest of my life. What I want to do? Like, how do I see it? And I view it as a part of my life, and I enjoy what I do. And when you enjoy what, something you do, it makes every day getting up just that much greater. And if I can um, pass on some of my enthusiasm about life to others and help them in their latter uh, steps, then I'm passing on gifts that I receive from someone else. And you know, there's a guy, um, and he's still living, his name is Steve Reedy. I had a couple of people that were advocates and supporters um, of just my entry into the, in the business, my continuation in the business. And then when times were tough, uh, for whatever reason, um, they were a lending ear about just get off your duff, mend that broken bone, and go. And so if I can um, tell anyone who wants to listen who comes to me that uh, everyone has a unique narrative, and the barrier you may face is not unique. It doesn't care who you are, what you are. It's about enthusiasm and it's about drive. And so mentoring or passing down a gift is really um, a door opener, right? And if I can help someone with that expectation about a future return, then I'm just giving back what I got. And, th and that's what I think is, is the, the real point. It's the, it's the helping without the expectation of return the more you can surround yourself with people like that in your career, I think the better your network becomes. It becomes stronger because yep. then, okay, you know that when you do call on one of those people in your network and ask them to help somebody else, they're going to help without the expectation of return and it becomes very powerful. That's correct. All right, final question. Where are we going for dinner? <laughs> You're buying. <laughs> all right, thanks a lot, Reggie. This was great. Um, really appreciate you coming down. Thanks, Chris.